Got one more year till I enter my golden years. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to be 59 tomorrow, in case you don't know. So pray for me. <laughs> Open your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. <sighs> this last week, I uh, ran into an old friend on one of my infrequent visits to McDonald's for breakfast. I walked in, there he was, and uh, it's the first time I've ever seen him there, and he was a young person in our youth ministry uh, back when we both had dark hair, and uh, good young man, and uh, was a a godly young man, went on to to serve the Lord, went to a Christian school, and has walked with the Lord all these years, so it was a blessing to see him, but uh, he he had... uh, a big news for me, if you will. He, uh, he said, you know, when I was, uh, he was adopted. He is, uh, 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 he is a Native American who was adopted by a family in our church. And he said, when I got into high school, I was struggling a little bit with my identity as an adopted person and so on. And he said, but I came to understand that, that when I accepted Christ, I was adopted into God's family. And he said, you know what? I, I figured I know who my eternal father is. That's good enough. And uh, that, that was, it was neat. I'd never heard him say that before and heard that he'd gone through that transition. And he said, but in this last year, I've found my biological family quite by accident. And a, a relative in his adoptive family ran into an old friend on Facebook who's married to this fellow's brother. (laughs) And he said, I found out that my parents were never married to each other. There was a husband and wife here and a husband and wife here that were married and had children, and they had a drunken one-night stand. And he said, and I'm the product of that relationship. He said, uh, shortly after... I, my mother gave birth to me, she died. And so he was put up for adoption. I have 10 half-brothers and sisters on this side, and I have 10 half-brothers and sisters on this side. How we live out our sexuality and marriage is not a private personal preference, but it's something that touches many souls, including our own, in very significant ways. The world would like to tell you you can do anything you want with your sexuality and your concept of marriage, and that it's your business, you can do as you please, and it's just up to you. That is not true. What you do with your sexual life and with your familial life has many ramifications. And God in his mercy has given us very high expectations, but he's made them very clear. God's expectations are the path to a, the certain path to a joyful and peaceful family life. Please follow as I read from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The Apostle Paul is answering questions about the area of sexuality and marriage life 
to the Corinthian believers. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. It would appear that the Corinthians were so broken by the misuse of sexuality that they said, isn't it just best to just abstain from sexuality completely? And the Apostle Paul said, it is a good thing for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality or the risk of becoming immoral, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due to her. Likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say as a concession and not as a commandment. For I wish that all men were even as myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and one another in that. But I say to the unmarried and the widows, it's good for them if they remain even as I. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Now to the married... I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if a brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him." For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether or not you will save your husband? How do you know, O husband, whether or not you will save your wife? We are beginning in, in, in uh, verse 10 and actually the second half of verses 10 through 16. If you missed the first part, I'd encourage you to go to the website and listen to the first couple of sermons so you get the whole flow and the whole tone of what God is saying. I know that God has not spoken exhaustively on marriage and divorce in this passage. and so But we are working our way through this passage and trying to understand, in particular, in verses 10 through 16, trying to understand from a positive perspective, what can I do to preserve marriage? See, many times we read this chapter and we look for the rules of divorce. And the rules of divorce are there. All of them except one. But the more important thing we can learn from this passage is, how can I preserve my marriage? And we looked at, we began looking at this uh, verses 10 through 16 last week, and I just want to review br briefly what we talked about and then get into the second half. Marriage is preserved by not leaving the marriage. That was the rocket science I came up with last week. Okay? But this has some very important ramifications, and the ramification is this. Are you intending to form a lifelong marriage? Jesus said, this, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. God says that when you come together in a marriage relationship, there is a new 
single entity created. One plus one equals one. One flesh. And it's not just physical. He calls it a one flesh relationship because obviously in the sexual union, there is a literal physical joining of two people. But that is typical or picturesque of God, of the whole joining of the two souls that comes together. And God views those two as one. And that's why God says divorce is wrong because you've brought two together into one and to separate is to tear that one apart again. Marriage is a committed, based on, this is a definition based on the words of Jesus, a committed, monogamous, heterosexual, lifelong relationship. You want to have one of those kind of marriages, start with that kind of definition. Don't define marriage any other way, because when you do, you may give yourself an out. This is especially important for those of you who are single, okay? Whether you are a young person looking ahead to marriage, whether you are uh, somebody who is newly single, looking around and thinking, I wonder if God has another mate for me. Maybe you've been single most of your life, and, and who knows what God has. One of our own good friends, Iola, served the Lord as a single missionary, went to Africa, determined to serve the Lord. And after many, many years, God brought her a widower who was also serving the Lord on the mission field. And they were married and, and, and enjoyed marriage for 10 years until God took him home. And now she's single again. You never know the path God has for you. You never know what's ahead. But we serve the Lord and we honor him and we approach marriage in this godly way. And when we do, we reap the blessing of God. Galatians 6 says if you in, invest in the spirit life, if you walk in the spirit, you reap eternal life. You reap the reward of God. For those of you who are married... Is your spiritual mind set to marriage for a lifetime? Our society isn't set that way. Our society is set for until it doesn't please me anymore. Really, it's our society is set the same way the Corinthian society was and the same way the, the Jerusalem society was where Jesus was there. And so that's why Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife except for the cause of sexual immorality... When that person gets remarried, they are committing immorality, uh, adultery, and whoever marries her commits adultery. In other words, God, Jesus said right up front, his intention is for a lifelong marriage, and anything else um, is adultery when the next relationship begins. That is the baseline. Now, that brings us to point number two of Pastor Dave's rocket science on marriage. Marriage is preserved by not committing adultery. And I know that sounds really simple, but it's got to be lived out in some very practical ways. Otherwise, nobody plans to hurt their partner when they get married. Uh, very few. I mean, there, I'm sure there are some people who are so, so locked into their sin that they really don't intend to be true to their husband or wife. I'm sure that's possible. But I think the vast majority of people get married and they expect to be true to their husband or wife. But it's not just a matter of saying, oh, yes, I intend to be true to my husband or wife. Um, a, uh, a dream without a plan is just a wish. And so the plan looks like this. 
A commitment to fidelity looks like complete relational accountability to your spouse. You are open and and, uh, transparent between a husband and wife. Secondly, it's wise relational distance from the opposite sex. In other words, I don't get too close to people, uh, anyone that I'm not married to, or we have certain kinds of closeness, but we don't have that kind of closeness. And then zero tolerance for pornography, whether in writing pictures or moving, uh, writing... um, Writing pictures or moving pictures. In other words, I just don't put myself in the place of temptation. And rule number, all of these rules are based on a very important fact. You cannot control sin. Sin will control you. Okay? Um, You should not try to prove that you can control sin. Oh, yes, I'm... I'm man enough. I can stand right on the edge and not fall over. Used this little illustration last week of driving on the edge. Thankfully, none of our roads are that bad. Uh, (laughs) If you were driving on that road, you would hug the inside, not move to the outside. You would stay away from danger. These little are rules, if you will. These, these are applications of the Scripture. I urge you to make your own application of the Scripture to make your own rules for living out the commitment of fidelity. Every single one of our lives is a little bit different. And, and you, you know, we all have different relationships at work or at school or wherever. And, but to take the Scripture and say, what will it take for me to be true to my husband or wife? What will it take for me as a single young person to live in the commitment to fidelity? Do you know that living in self-control with your sexuality as a single person prepares you to be self-controlled in your sexuality as a married person? Self-control is a trait of, of, of the spiritual life. Galatians 5 says it's one of the fruits of the spirit that, that works out through life. In other words, if, if I can be self-controlled here, I can probably learn to be self-controlled there, and I can learn to be self-controlled there. Let that self-control prepare you for marriage. Number three in this passage, marriage is preserved by relationship repair. Look at verse 12, or excuse me, verse 11. If one of the partners departs, Let them remain unmarried or be reconciled. God's goal is always reconciliation. Always reconciliation. Could I just say this very plainly from having talked to a lot of people who are right in the throes of the crisis of marriage? It always looks easier to get out. It looks easier to get out. It looks easier to escape. It is not. First and foremost, it's not because it's not God's will. And when I step outside of God's will, I'm living on my own. And that is never easier than saying, okay, God, your path is the hard path, but I want to be there, and would you please be there with me? And when you do that, when you walk on the hard path, trusting in God, do you know what you get to see? What do you think? One word, class. Miracles. 
Remember when the apostles went out to preach and they came back beat up because they couldn't, they couldn't deliver this person from a demon that they were possessed by? And Jesus said, this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. Jesus was clearly saying there are some things in life that are spiritually extra hard and demanding, but he didn't say there's no solution. He said there is a solution, but it's tough and it's challenging. But when we hang in there with God, we get to see him do miracles. And that is the coolest thing. That is the coolest thing, to see God restore relationship. I just talked about one thing last week, and I'll reiterate it again, that one of the key things to preserving marriage and to repairing marriage has to do with how we deal with the, the hurts and the, and the challenges of, of blending two lives together. And the instruction that Paul gives us about, really about forgiveness, he's going to get to it in verse 32, but he says, put away your bitterness, your wrath, your anger, your clamor, your evil speaking, put it away. And I, I penciled it out this way. When we don't forgive, we become bitter. Bitterness breeds hatred in the heart, wrath. This is the words of Ephesians 4.31. Hatred is expressed in hurtful actions, mean shouting, harmful words, and all kinds of sinful behavior. All of that stuff in verse 31 is the result of not forgiving. When I, I, I suffer a wrong and I hang on to it and I think about it, man, I am mad. And if you meditate on a wrong suffered, you will get angry. There's no doubt about that. That's the way God has built us, if you will. Whatever we think about impacts us. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Or count the hurts and the harms that have been done to you and become bitter and angry. And, and, and when the time comes to speak, fire comes out of your mouth. Ah. I'm not exaggerating, am I? I get a, don't raise your hand. <laughs> hey, I'm not exempt from this. And so the solution, the solution, how do you stop this from happening? Forgiveness. Oh, there's another miracle waiting to happen, isn't it? Yeah, it is a miracle because forgiveness is not natural. In fact, after preaching this sermon last week, I was out visiting somebody who does not know the Lord, that I visit on a regular basis. I'm trying to engage in a redemptive relationship. And uh, this person will sometimes ask me what I've been doing or what I've been preaching on. Don't ever ask a preacher about that unless you want to hear. <laughs> Used to go to the fire station in Tuckwill, and I walk in, and one guy always said, well, what do you know? I said, I know lots of things. He said, that's enough. <laughs> Boy, I, I was waiting for him to ask. Um, and I talked to this person, and I talked about this issue of forgiveness. And he said, man, that's the hardest. He said, I, I want to forgive. There are times when I'm, I've decided to forgive, but I just can't. You know what? That's, and that's, I, I left this, this friend saying, there's a whole greater life out there for you, brother. Forgiveness is supernatural. 
That's why this verse here encapsulates it for us. We should be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving, as God in Christ forgave us. If you have a hard time with forgiveness, could I just ask you to just do this calculation with me? Uh, I'm going to be 59 tomorrow, so I'll, I'll use myself. Let's say, let's, I'm going to give myself a pass for the first couple, three years, because maybe I don't really know what sin and righteousness is. So, um, in fact, I'm just going to give myself a pass for nine years. I'm going to cut it down to 50 and make it real easy. And so let's say that once I started to understand what sin was, I only sinned three times a day. Okay, I'm a pretty good guy. That's probably about right. Oh, there's one. Sorry, Lord. <laughs> in, a, <laughs> in a year, that's a thousand. And in 50 years, it's 50,000. And God forgave me of them all before I even believed in Christ. In eternity past, Jesus was slain. Because God knew I couldn't match up to his standard. Christ went to the cross. And so when I believe in him, God forgives all of my sins. He sees me as righteous in front of him. If I were to drop dead right now and stand in his presence, he'd say, good to see you. Not because of me, but because the blood of Christ covers my sin. Now, day to day, I got to work on, on cutting that down from three to two. I'm not quite there yet. But when I do sin, I confess. And 1 John 1, 9 says, if I confess my sin, he is faithful to forgive and to cleanse. That's the model of forgiveness. That's what the Lord's prayer means when it says, forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's hard to forgive. It's hard to forgive, there's no doubt about that. But it's possible because it is Christ in you, the hope of glory, who's at work in you. You wanna preserve your marriage, forgive. You wanna preserve your parent-child relationship, forgive. And that's a two-way street, kids. Your parents aren't perfect when you look up at them and think, uh, hey, forgive, forgive. My kids had to forgive me for a couple of things every day. <laughs> oh, I had to apologize lots of times, and I'm glad they forgave. I'm glad they didn't carry a, a grudge. I had to forgive them a couple times, too. That's the stuff of relationship. That's the cool thing about being a Christian. I don't have to live in bitterness. I don't have to tear my marriage down with my own hands because of my pride. My hurt, my wrong. There's another condition, though, in this passage. We touched on it last week. Marriage is preserved by the perseverance of a godly spouse. Look at verse, look at verse 12. But to the rest. Clearly, if, if you look at the flow of this and the way Paul words this out, verses 10 and 11, he's focusing on two Christians married to each other. And he's saying to those two Christians, there is no reason for you to get divorced. Now, we understand what, what Jesus said about adultery, and I'm going to come back to, to three ways that marriage ends here in just a minute. But he's saying, Christians, 
work it out. Now he's saying that you might be a you might have got saved after you got married and you're married to an unbeliever. To the rest, not I, but the, not the Lord, but I say, if a brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And so the other way when he turns it around to the other spouse. God is not giving permission for believers to marry unbelievers. Look at verse 39. We'll come down to this later in our studies. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes in the Lord. Did you get that? You can marry anybody you want who walks with the Lord. That is God's primary qualification on marriage. Okay? And so don't, don't, don't interpret verses 12 and 13 to be saying, oh, it's okay to marry an unbeliever, because if you do, then the Lord's going to save them. If you rebelliously marry an unbeliever, you may not get what you're hoping for. I believe that Paul is talking here to people who didn't know God's truth, like, like my dad, who was raised in a Christian home, but not real Christian. And he came in the Navy to Cedar Woolley and married my mom, who was an unbeliever. He had just enough Christianity to take her to church. And she got saved, and he got right with the Lord. Those are the kind of situations that God is talking about here. Not the kind where we say, well, I don't, you know, God will work it out, and it doesn't matter what I do with my life. Don't live your life that way. Don't do it. Don't do it. Be patient for God. Marriage is preserved by the perseverance of the godly spouse. So what he says is, these people were coming into a time when they said, hey, I'm married to an unbeliever, and this unbeliever is a real unbeliever. They go up to that temple and worship with those prostitutes. They offer sacrifices. They do all this wicked stuff that, well, I used to do it too, but now I got saved. And God says, don't leave them. Don't leave them. Persevere as the godly spouse. Why? He says, because you are going to have a sanctifying impact on your husband or wife. The word sanctified means to be set apart to God. It doesn't mean that the perseverance of the godly person saves the unbeliever. And it doesn't mean that, two, that, a, that a saved parent saves the child. What he's saying is that the sanctifying is, he's saying he's put the unbeliever into a special realm. Here's the unbeliever all by himself. And when the unbeliever has a spouse who gets saved, it's like the unbeliever now is brought into the realm of God's work, the realm of God's influence. And the same thing with the child, and there's great potential for blessing when that happens. Great potential for blessing. We do understand from this passage that there are three reasons for the dissolution of a marriage. First is death. Romans 7, 2 talks about it. We just read it here in verse 39. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. In other words, when a husband or wife dies, the marriage bond is broken. Number two, adultery from Matthew 19. And then the passage we're looking at right now, the desertion by an unbeliever. He said there may come a time when even though you have tried to preserve this marriage, that an unbeliever walks away and says, I don't want to be married to you. And God graciously says, I understand that that'll happen. And when that happens, you're free. 
Now, having said that, we want to turn our attention to these verses 14, 15, and 16 and really try to think this truth through. Marriage is preserved by staying focused on a heavenly purpose. When he talks to those who are married to the unbelievers, he says to them, don't you understand that there is a sanctifying impact, there is a, a Christian impact on the unbeliever once you get saved? Um, and he said there's also a sanctifying impact on those children. When he says, uh, how do you know whether you will save your husband or wife? And he talks about the sanctifying impact and talks about the cleanness of the children. And um, we understand from that that there is a Christian influence to be, to be exerted on people. One of the people who comments on that is a fellow who is a Lutheran. Now, the reason I'm quoting and I'm telling you he's a Lutheran is this. If you know anything about the Lutheran belief system, they believe in baptizing a baby. And they believe that that makes the baby become part of the covenant family. And we would look at a passage like this and think, well, it sounds to me like we're talking about the faith of the parents saving the child. Okay? And so I'm quoting R.C.H. Lenski, who is one of the best-known commentators on Scripture in, in the 20th century. He says, The children are holy from the moment of their birth in the same sense as the unbelieving father or the mother has holiness conferred upon him or her by the presence of the Christian in the family. Paul indicates nothing in regard to the baptism of such children. I say that because there is a large group of Christian folks up to the north of us who are really big on baptizing babies and so-called bringing them into a saving relationship or a grace relationship. And we need to understand, no, that is not what it's talking about. But what he's saying is that this Christian influence comes around people. William Barclay commented this way, in a partnership between a believer and an unbeliever, it is not so much that the believer is brought into contact with the realm of sin as that the unbeliever is brought into contact with the realm of grace. Now, it's important to put this passage in its context because when, someday if we get to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he's going to say very clearly, do not choose to become yoked together with an unbeliever because an unbeliever and a believer don't have any true things in common. Okay, So he's not, again, he's not approving of the idea that it's okay to marry an unbeliever. What he's saying is when one or the two of you get saved in this relationship, there is a sanctifying impact. And the most important thing he's saying is do not divorce them simply because they're an unbeliever. You know, we looked at these, he may desert you or she may desert you and run away. There may be adultery, that's a different situation. But don't divorce them simply because they're an unbeliever. I've had people tell me this. Don't you think it's okay? Don't you think, you know, God wants me to be happy and I'm not happy married to this unbeliever? No, in fact, just the opposite. Because, verse 16, how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? There is the potential for Christianity to flow from, through the family from the Christian part of it. 
And what we really have to grasp is this, pushing an unbeliever away from the marriage pushes them away from Christian influence for two reasons. Number one, the simple distance from, an, from a believer. There is no relationship on earth closer than a husband and wife. I know not every marriage is perfect, but when you're, when you're spending a large part of your day living together, eating together, whatever, all of that, there's a very close relationship. And there is a potential for the husband or wife to demonstrate Christ like no other. But there's another important reason as well. If you push an unbeliever out of your marriage simply because you don't like them, you can't get along with them for no good godly reason, the result is going to be hatred for Christianity. That Christian, they divorced me. And that's exactly what people will say and do say. The same thing would be true of the children. Divorce is never easy for children. Don't tell me about an amiable divorce. You might be happy, but I can guarantee you there are people in the family who are not, and there will be significant impacts. I had the most wonderful young man in my youth ministry. Everybody loved him. He was, just a, he was a, a giant guy, you know bench press huge weight but a gentle giant and his parents got divorced his christian parents got divorced after many years of bickering and fighting and i don't know all the details probably some some real serious sin going on at least one of the parties and here's this fine guy he's like 16 17 years old he comes into my office and he says i just can't help think that somehow part of this is my fault Oh, man, of all the children in your family, it, it is certainly not your fault. Maybe your brother, but not you. <laughs> hey, take the word friendly divorce out of your vocabulary. Could I even just say it this way? Take the word divorce out of your vocabulary, because you know what? You will never be completely divorced from that person. You just won't. And, and God has a better way. Now, again, I understand there are, some, there are some times when divorce happens and it is a godly thing. I'm not saying I'm against it all. What I'm saying is, did you hear the tone of this passage? If there's a separation, let them be reconciled. If there's an unbeliever, hang on to them. Don't push them out. Do, do you get the tone of God's passage? He, he's... He, he, we like to look for the rules of divorce. God says, I want to find the rules of preserving marriage. Again, I appreciate Lenski and his comment when he says, instead of seeking ethical reasons for disrupting a marriage, a proper view of this type of marriage with a believer and an unbeliever discloses the ethical reasons for leaving it intact. Hmm. those of you who find yourself married to an unbeliever really need to commit this passage to memory i know it's addressed to wives but it applies equally to husbands who might find themselves married to an unbeliever 
Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husband, that even if some do not obey the, the word, the word of God, they without a spoken word may be won by the conduct of their wives. Do you get that little play there? Maybe they don't obey the Bible, but you don't have to speak a word to win. You need conduct in your life when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. For any of us who have an unbeliever in our family, which I'm assuming that covers everybody. We all have at least one unbeliever in our family. Some of us have more. We need to think and pray real hard about how we talk and how we act, especially when we're around that unbeliever. And if you're around that unbeliever 24-7, then you really need to step up your Christian game and say, oh God, I need to, I need to live this. I need to be an example of this. See, God's in the business of saving people, not throwing them away. Where would you be if God gave you the same amount of grace you're thinking about giving that other person in your life who's hard to get along with, especially if it's a husband or wife? Oh, I'm so thankful that God was patient and gracious with me. It took me a while to say, okay, God, I'm, and, and, to, and to start trying to walk on his path, and, and I'm not doing that perfectly yet, and he's still gracious with me after 59 years. God is in the business of graciously reaching people for himself, and that's what he, he's calling us to be in that business. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he said, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, and he's given to us the ministry of reconciliation. And there's no better place for that to start than at home in marriage. In his commentary, John Phillips relayed the story of a friend who got saved some years after being married while his wife remained unsaved. He spoke of the significant change that came in the man's life, but his wife didn't like it. So she purposefully did things to antagonize him, like smoking cigarettes in the house all the time and all kinds of things that she knew just annoyed him habits he'd left by she picked him up and ran with it to to try to dissuade him and to uh, make him pay for his faith if you will and here's the quote from john phillips about his friend my friend was not the wisest person i've ever met and doubtless he aggravated his wife with his zeal for a christian lifestyle which was foreign to the one he had lived before had my friend shown his wife more consideration and tender loving care, he might have won her. As it was, he regarded her as his cross to bear and spent as much time as he could away from home, rarely spoke about her, and just, quote, put up with her when he was at home. Do you understand how this passage is saying, do the opposite of that? This passage is saying, love the unbelievers that are around you, whether it's a husband and wife, a child, a parent, whoever it is, say, oh God, you've put me here. I'm supposed to be the redemptive component of this family, and Lord knows we need redeeming. 
God has given us a pattern. And he's going to talk to us more about this as we go through this chapter. But he's given us a pattern for preserving marriage. I recently picked up some prepared chicken breasts at a grocery store that will remain nameless in town. You know, you look in the meat, you look in the meat case and you go, wow, that looks good. And frankly, I don't feel like being my own sous chef tonight, so dinner, boom. You know, they got stuff inside, stuff on the outside, it's all rolled up. Put it in the oven for 35 minutes at 350 and you're eating high on the hog. Yes, sir. Not so much. You know, the texture, I mean, it's, it's white meat chicken breast. How can you mess that up? I don't know. The texture wasn't that good, and neither was the flavor. And get this, this guy didn't finish what he had on his plate. <laughs> I will never buy them again, because here's the deal. I don't eat lousy food on purpose. I eat it by accident sometimes. <laughs> But I don't eat lousy food on purpose. I do my best to eat good food. Why wouldn't I? If I get to choose, that's what I'm going to do. Could I just, could I just give you a, a really simple two applications of this message and last week's message? Don't settle for a lousy marriage. And I'm talking about single people going into marriage here. D don't ever in your life go, well, you know, I don't know. It's not the best, it's not what God says, but my only chance, so I guess I'll take this lousy marriage. Don't do that. Don't do that. Get yourself right with God. Wait for God's best for you. I'm not saying God's going to bring you tall, dark, and handsome. You know, short, cute, and blonde. I, I'm not saying that, 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 that your, your, your image may be off, and you may need to adapt that to what God says is important for marriage. But if you get what God says is important right, marriage is going to work. It's going to work. Oh, there'll be challenges. There'll be challenges, but marriage is going to work, and it's going to last a long time. Don't settle for a lousy marriage. And, and number two, don't settle for a lousy ending to marriage. Now, again, I'm not criticizing those of you who are divorced, and I know many of you are. Um, I, I'm not, that's not my goal here. It's not my goal to add insult to injury. Some of you were divorced. Uh, you couldn't do anything about it. You tried to stop it, and it happened. I, I get that. But I'm talking to people who are married. And what I'm saying is, no matter how great the challenge get, gets, don't settle for a lousy ending to your marriage as much as depends on you. Say, God, I'm going to pick this plan up for preserving my marriage, and I am going to run with it. And I'm going to do my best to honor you. I'm going to do my best to, to reap your blessing. You know, I ate some lousy food when I was in Africa. I didn't know it was lousy. I knew there was a real good chance. It made me sick for a month. <sighs> I hate anything that even smells like that anymore. If you want to know what doesn't work, just look around and then say, oh God, I don't want to do that. I want to follow your path. I want to reap your joy and your blessing. Heavenly Father, 
help us. I pray that you will take your word and bring it home to people as only you can today. And I pray that we would pick up your heart for preserving marriage and for bringing people to faith. And I pray that 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 would happen. Thank you for being with us today. Do your work among us, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.